This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. National security. This term carries a consciousness of the outside world as a potentially dangerous place. How is this nation to stay secure, to stay safe? Where are the threats? What are the best ways to reduce them? These questions don't necessarily come with clear answers. Russia, is that threat exaggerated? Or Iran, does getting tougher on Iran make sense? Or NATO as an alliance, does that alliance itself still make sense? Well, we think these issues are nuanced and difficult and therefore eminently debatable so let's do it. I'm John Donvan, here with our live audience at Symphony Space in New York City. For this one, we are using the format we call Unresolved, in which five debaters vigorously debate independently. They are not on teams, they're all flying solo, and they're taking on not just one resolution, but a whole series of them. This series called Unresolved U.S. National Security. Please, let's meet our debaters. First, welcome Derek Chalet. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Thank Welcome you. back to Intelligence Squared. You are Executive Vice President of the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Uh, you had a number of posts, senior posts in the Obama administration, including Assistant Secretary of Defense for International Security Affairs, co-editor of a foreign policy blog called Shadow Government, written by members of, of a group who described themselves as the loyal opposition. What exactly do we mean by loyal opposition? Well, it's not the deep state. Uh, but it's, it's approaching problems, wanting, of course, what's good for the country, but doing so not being reflexively partisan, uh, being brave enough to not pull punches and say when the administration's getting it wrong, but also uh, having the courage to say when it's getting it right. That's been courage I've had used rarely recently, uh, but that's very important. So thanks very much. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Derek Cholet. Our next debater, please welcome Stephen Cohen. Stephen, welcome to Intelligence Squared U.S. You're a contributing editor at The Nation, professor emeritus of Russian studies at NYU and at Princeton, author of a lot of books, including one that's about to come out called War with Russia, a dissenting narrative from Putin and Ukraine to Trump and Russiagate. You have been really, really interested in Russia since your college days. Where, where did that all start? When I was young, before most of you were born, I was in Birmingham, England, finishing a year of study. I had left 30 days and 300 bucks. I intended, because I read Hemingway, to go to Spain and watch the Bulls run. But I was walking in the working-class district of Birmingham, and I saw a sign, 30 days in the Soviet Union for $300. <laughs> I was no dummy. I got on the ship. I saw five Soviet cities awakening from Stalin's terror, and still isolated behind the Iron Curtain, I was enthralled, and that became my fate. No bulls? I never made it to the bulls. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry to hear that. Ladies and gentlemen, once again, Stephen Cohen. Our next debater, please welcome Corey Shackey. Corey, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You are Deputy Director General of the International Institute for Strategic Studies. You served on the National Security Council under President George W. Bush. You helped create NATO's Ally Command Transformation and the NATO Response Force. You have been critical of President Trump but you've called on your friends in the administration, please don't resign. Why not? Because I think especially now with democracy in America under pressure, it's really important for people of integrity to serve in our government. Thank you, Kari Shaki. Very simple and to the point. Ladies and gentlemen, Kari Shaki. Our next debater, please welcome John Mearsheimer. John, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You're a professor at the University of Chicago. You are one of the nation's most influential political scientists. You are also a best-selling author. Your newest book, The Great Delusion, Liberal Dreams and International Realities, comes out next week. We're on the Upper West Side of New York, so tell us, what's this liberal delusion you're talking about? <laughs> Collect your thoughts. That's very clever, John. Uh, 
It's a book that attempts to explain uh, why liberal hegemony, which is the very militaristic foreign policy that the United States has pursued since the end of the Cold War, has failed miserably and helped put Donald Trump in the White House. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. And please welcome Roel Mark Gerecht. Roel, uh, welcome back to Intelligence Squared. You're a senior fellow at the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Before that, you were a case officer at the CIA. You've written three books, including Know Thine Enemy, A Spy's Journey into Revolutionary Iran. What is that book about? Uh, well, I had studied Iran my entire life, uh, yet I had not been there. When I was in the CIA, of course, they wouldn't let me go in, though I had sent agents into Iran. Uh, when I left, I tried to get a pilgrimage visa, but the Iranians saw through that cheap trick. So I decided to take a little clandestine truck trip into Iran. And, uh, you know, when you're young, you do stupid things, and if you're lucky, you overcome them. And here you are, so it and must here, have worked out. And uh, here I am. Okay, once again, everybody, ladies and gentlemen, the debaters arguing tonight's series of resolutions. Let's move on to our first resolution, NATO. NATO, the alliance born of a great war with the aim of protecting Western Europe against a Soviet threat. But the Soviets are gone, and NATO has gone to war in places as far distant from the North Atlantic, for which it's named as Afghanistan and Libya. Does this arrangement still make sense? And here's how it's going to work. For each resolution, the debaters will declare in the moment that I ask them what their position is on this, yes or no to the statement that I give them. On the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Corey Shockey, do you declare yes or no? I believe NATO is still fit for purpose. So um, the people who put together the NATO alliance weren't you know, starry-eyed college professors arguing in a faculty lounge. They were the people who had fought World War II and were really worried that unless the countries of Europe and the United States banded together, we would not be able to anticipate threats as they rose and the costs for each of us of defending our societies could be overwhelming. And so the cost-sharing of the NATO allies helped us prevent the Soviet Union and Russia and other countries from becoming threats to us. The argument that the United States spends too much on NATO, that's true if you look at the entirety of the defense budget, but we don't use the entirety of the defense budget for the defense of Europe. What we contribute to the defense of Europe is proportional compared to what Europeans contribute for their own defense. Thank you, Kurishaki. Let's move to our next debater, John Mearsheimer. John Mearsheimer, on the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Do you declare yes or no? John, I'm a yes, and I respectfully disagree almost completely with Corey. I think that when NATO was set up to deal with the Soviet threat, it made eminently good sense to create that institution. I think that institution did a fine job as long as the Soviet Union was there. The Soviet Union, however, disappeared, and therefore I think it's time for the United States to go home. Uh, the United States should be pivoting to Asia because to the extent that we have a threat in the international system we have to deal with, it is China. But furthermore, we ought to spend some of that money we spend on Europe in fixing the subways here in New York. Your subway system is absolutely terrible. Uh, your, schools, your schools are in terrible shape. So there's all sorts of reasons for the United States not to spend money defending other people who are perfectly capable of defending themselves. The Europeans, without the Americans, have a gross uh, national product that's ten times the size of Russia, and they spend five times as much money on defense. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. <laughs> to our next speaker on the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Well, Mark Gerecht, do you declare yes or no? No. Yeah, I mean, I, I think NATO obviously should, should be obvious, still serves a purpose. Uh, if you go around and you travel to Europe, you talk to the foreign policy crowds in all the European countries, whether it be in the West or the East, you don't even have to go to the Baltic republics, you won't find anyone saying, oh, I wish NATO were dead. Uh, they uh, believe that Russia is a threat, uh, and I think they have the grounds to know. I would also suggest that it's rather important for the United States just to stay in Europe for the Europeans. The likelihood of turmoil, tumult, and carnage 
is vastly less if the Americans stay. In fact, I would say it's non-existent if the Americans stay. And I think it's a delusional to believe that the Europeans couldn't misfire again. And I don't think that really the amount of money that we spend in Europe on NATO is going to make a hoot's worth of difference on the subway system in this city. Uh, we're talking really about small potatoes here. Thank you. Roel Marquera. Next to argue this resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Derek Cholet. Derek, do you declare yes or no? John, I declare no. Uh, NATO is fit for purpose. Consider our two strategic rivals, Russia and China, and ask yourselves, how many willing partners do they have? Countries that they haven't bought off or strong-armed in some way. Countries that believe that an attack on one is an attack against all. The answer is no. Yet for seven decades, the United States has enjoyed the partnership of an alliance that today is 29 countries strong. Some of these countries are large, some are small. They've helped keep the peace in Europe. They're working with American soldiers today on the ground in places like Afghanistan and Iraq, and they're working with the U.S. military on confronting the challenges of the future. Now, can working with partners prove time-consuming and frustrating? Absolutely which is why the alliance needs reforms to make itself faster and more agile, and why the Europeans do need to spend more on their defense. But that's a far cry from saying that NATO is no longer fit for purpose and needs to be retired. If NATO did not exist today, we would be racing to invent it. Thank you, Derek Chalet. Our final opening statement on the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Stephen Cohen, do you declare yes or no? Yes. Well, I live on the Upper East. Uh, west side around the corner but I hail from Kentucky so I don't have any liberal illusions and I may be the only person up here who actually rides the New York subway every day but the question is different looming over this debate is something that hasn't yet been mentioned NATO lost its status purpose with the Soviet Union it very quickly found another expanding from Germany all the way to literally on Russia's borders what's the result then they tell us it brought security. Where is this security? What it's brought instead is a new and more dangerous Cold War because this Cold War has its epicenter not in faraway Berlin, but right on Russia's borders. Along the way, it's generated three American-Russian proxy wars, Georgia, Ukraine, Syria, with another one brewing in the Baltic area. Stephen Cohen there, arguing in favor of the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. More debate on U.S. national security when Intelligence Squared continues. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory... Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Welcome back to Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan. Today we have five panelists debating a series of different resolutions on the theme of U.S. national security. Before the break, we heard opening statements on the first resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. Now, back to the debate. Let's have some discussion. We have uh, three no's on this resolution, and these no's are actually uh, reverse negative in this case. Those no's are actually supportive of NATO, and we have two yeses which are very skeptical of NATO. What I heard in these conversations so far was a lot of focus on Russia, before that, the Soviet Union, and the security of Europe. But I want to point out that NATO is also operating in Afghanistan and Kosovo and in the Mediterranean. These, are, these things have nothing to do with Europe. This is, I don't know if you would call this mission creep or what else, but Corey, I want you to take on that aspect of NATO's being fit for purpose. What is its purpose if it's not uh, limited to the security of Europe? So the one thing all of those military operations you named have in common is that it was the United States who dragged our European allies into participating in them. So one reason that NATO is fit for purpose is because it is the way we organize the most capable countries most willing to help us do what we want to do in the world. And I would just remind people that the only time that NATO's 
mutual defense pledge was called in was after September 11th in defense of us. Uh, John Mearsheimer, take this on as well, please. Yeah, I just want to make two points. One is that when you talk about NATO from a favorable point of view, it's all part of a story where the United States has a responsibility to keep peace in virtually every area of the world. And furthermore, it's important to have these European allies because they can help us in all these crazy escapades that we engage in where we get our nose bloody. Libya. Look at Libya. The Europeans were really wonderful in helping us destabilize Libya and create all sorts of problems, not only in Libya, but with regard to refugees inside of Europe. Furthermore, NATO expansion, which was all designed just to keep NATO alive, has failed miserably. We're more, now more deeply involved in Eastern Europe than ever when we should be either pivoting to Asia or spending the money here in the United States. On the question of the pivot to Asia, well, John Mearsheimer was saying we have limited resources and there are more dangerous places that we should be pivoting to and paying attention to, for example, China. We can't do both. What about that? Well, one, I think we can do both. We historically have done both. Whether we choose to bear the burden is a different issue. I think you can check the Chinese, but it's going to be a risky process. We're going to have to stand firm on Taiwan. But, it does, but to the point of NATO, you're saying that in no way would you say that the need to deal, deal with no. China cancels out no. NATO. No, I mean, again, we're not talking now. If you add all the, this money up, it's comparatively to what we spend on domestic affairs, it's peanuts. Stephen Cohen, um, Ruel said in his opening statement that it's tempting fate to pull out of Europe, meaning I think what he's saying fate actually is is Russia. Um, take that on. Well, we've got to do that when we get to the Russia threat, and I don't think there's any. But I'd like to quarrel a little with what I read in the paper every day, that NATO is, quote, the greatest military alliance in the history of the world. You all have seen this, right? Well, first of all, NATO hasn't fought a war as an alliance yet, so we're really not sure about that. Secondly, when NATO does fight wars, it's a handful of willing partners with the United States, the coalition of the willing. But look at the wars. John mentioned them. What do we got? Serbia ended up to be a disaster. Everybody in this room, not just those with liberal illusions, would agree Iraq was a disaster. Where is this greatest military alliance in the world? Where is the security it's brought? Having friends to fight alongside you doesn't uh, guarantee that you're going to fight the right wars or have the right strategies. Uh, it means you don't have to do it all by yourself. And so the part of the answer to the China rising is it's going to be a lot easier to manage a rising China if, as is now already happening, Britain and France are helping us police freedom of navigation, the Japanese are helping us do that, the Dutch are helping us do that. It seems to me likelier that we would have more wars if you didn't have the NATO alliance to rule Eastern Europe and the Baltic countries out of bounds. I'm actually sort of astonished, and I'm proud. I mean, the Europeans have lasted as long as they have in Afghanistan. Uh, I have to give them credit. I, I would mean, not have bet my I money mean, that way in 2001. I mean, let's, let's be frank. I mean, the, the welfare states in Europe have enfeebled the militaries in Europe. Uh, that they were able actually to come out and deploy the forces they did, I think is quite commendable. I wish they'd stayed longer. I wish they would spend more money. But I would just repeat a little story that was told to me by the British deputy commander of ISAF when I was in Afghanistan one time. And I asked him about the various European contributions. And he said, you know, the French commander comes to me once every two weeks. And he says the thing that makes the American and the British commander's hearts just start to pity patter. And that is... Who do you want us to kill? <laughs> John I, Mir- that John. is the sign of a good ally. John Mearsheimer. <laughs> but I, I just want to pick up on Raoul's point that the, the European militaries are feeble militaries. These are tiny militaries. And the reason they want us to be in Europe to protect them is so that they don't have to pay money for defense and Uncle Sucker pays the money to protect them. And the idea that the Europeans are going to help us contain China is not a serious argument. These countries have no power projection capability. If we weren't in Europe protecting them, they'd have to spend more money on themselves, and we'd be free to pivot to Asia, and we'd be free to fix the New York subways. (laughs) Well, uh, look, I... Derek Fillet. 
I'll take that bet. <laughs> we are certainly in Europe to help protect Europe, but the Europeans are our partners as we project our power in the world. Now, we can have a debate of the right or wrong way to project U.S. power and whether the right decisions have been made, but the U.S. has never gotten into a fight because the NATO allies have dragged us into that fight. When you go to Europe, when you go to the Baltics, when you go throughout Western Europe, France, Germany, you, you hear this, this demand for the United States. I mean, think of the drama we had over the summer when President Trump went to the NATO summit and talked about whether or not the U.S. would stay in the alliance, and there's panic throughout the European continent. They're worried that the United, the United States is going to go away, that U.S. leadership is going to be diminished. And think of the reason for that. They're asking for us. They want us to be there with them. And that's a very, very unique position for a country to be in. Russia and China do not have those kinds of problems. And this is, a, this is an asset for us that we can squander with the wrong decisions and the wrong kind of leadership. And that concludes discussion of the resolution, NATO is no longer fit for purpose. We're moving on to our next resolution. It deals with Russia. Yes, Russia makes trouble for the U.S., interfering in elections, meddling in the Middle East. But just how potentially dangerous is Moscow to the U.S. really? It has nukes, but an unimpressive economy. It has Putin, but a plethora of domestic problems. Might we be over-worrying the Russia factor, or are we not worried enough? Let's find out. Our resolution for this round, the Russia threat is overblown. Making the opening statement in regard to this question, Stephen Cohen, on the resolution, the Russian threat is overblown. Do you declare yes or no? Yeah, and you could write a book about it, and in fact, I just have. Uh, but... Pretty good. Let me, let me just wrap it up, and I don't need 90 seconds. Putin's Russia represents absolutely no threat to the United States except those threats we ourselves have provoked, mainly through NATO ex expansion. Putin himself, contrary to the newspapers, has not been mainly an aggressive leader. You would think that's his middle name, but a reactive leader. Russia today, like it or not, is again a very great world power, certainly militarily and diplomatically. Herein lies the tragedy, and on this I'll stop. Putin's Russia, anyone's Russia, should be America's number one national security partner in the world. Washington squandered that opportunity after 1991, and it's continued to squander it today by inventing or provoking threats residing in Russia which do not exist. Thank you, Stephen Cohen. To speak next on the resolution, the Russia threat is overblown. Corey Shockey, do you declare yes or no? I agree that the Russia threat is overblown, but not uh, because the Russians pose no threat to us or desire to pose no threat to us. Uh, the invasion of Ukraine, the invasion of Crimea, the invasion of Georgia, the military exercises that they are holding, simulating nuclear weapons use in the Baltic states. Uh, what Russia as a state appears to want is other countries to fail and that will make it feel safe. That's why I think Russia is a threat to us. They want to be seen that way, right? John McCain uh, always used to say that Russia wasn't, didn't have an economy, it was just a gas station. Um, and they actually don't have much of an economy outside of oil. And yet, they are intervening in Syria. Corey, Shaki, I have to cut you off. Thank you very much. Your time is up. On the resolution, the Russia threat is overblown. Our next speaker, John Mearsheimer. John, do you declare yes or no? I vote yes. I think that the Russian threat is completely overblown. I think the Russophobia in this country is off the charts. It's almost hard to believe. Uh, now, I do think that the Russians are uh, a low-level threat in social media, but who really cares? Uh, the question is whether they're not they're a strategic threat to the United States, a military threat in Europe. And the answer there is almost certainly no. First of all, they don't have the capability to conquer any meaningful territory in Eastern Europe. 
to the extent that they are a threat, it's because they have thousands of nuclear weapons, and that should scare the living bejesus out of all of us. But the fact that we're provoking them in Eastern Europe and in other places just makes it possible that those nuclear weapons will be used, and that's something we want to avoid at all costs. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. The Russia threat is overblown. Well, Mark Eric, do you declare yes or no? No. I mean, I, I have a bit of a split decision on this one. Uh, first, I mean, I think the threat is easily manageable. Uh, if, if, particularly if we maintain NATO. I think if NATO goes down, then Russia's uh, problems uh, loom large. I will just say this. I mean, if, if you have an individual, a dictator, who is sending uh, military intelligence agents out into small cities in Great Britain and letting loose nerve agents, that's a problem. Uh, if you have a Russian... If you have a Russian dictator that is uh, helping in the slaughter of tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of Syrians, that is a problem. And I think people tend to make light of what's going on in Syria. It is a a vast humanitarian tragedy. Uh, Vladimir Putin helped save Assad. And I think he is making a play for power. Now, on the other side, I agree with John. Uh, I think the whole notion of the Russian electoral interference in the United States is vastly overblown. I find it very boring. Ruel, thanks very much. Your time is up. Finally, to speak in an opening round on this resolution, the Russia threat is overblown. Derek Chalet, do you declare yes or no? No. Uh, and that's because Vladimir Putin's Russia has a clear set of strategic goals to divide the U.S. from Europe to undermine NATO, to support liberal and nationalist politics, and to weaken the United States and our democratic partners around the world, uh, undermining the very foundations of our democracies by spreading disinformation and fomenting dissent. Now, on some of these goals, Russia's succeeding. On others, it's not. But it would be strategic malpractice for us not to take this seriously and simply dismiss this threat as overblown. That said, I agree with some of my colleagues here. I do not believe that Russia is the greatest challenge to the United States in the 21st century. But Russia's weakness doesn't diminish the threat. In many ways, Russia's weakness makes the threat worse, causing Moscow to take greater risks and seek new nefarious ways that it can achieve its aims. We need to take this threat seriously. Thank you, Derek Chalet. And that concludes the opening statements on the resolution the Russia threat is overblown. And let's look at the... Flags now, we have two no's and three yeses on the resolution. The Russia threat is overblown. What I want to just throw into the mix here is the fact that right now Russia is dallying with China, Uh, certainly to tweak us, uh, maneuvers in the Mediterranean together very recently and other contacts between them. Whether you think we provoked it, we, the U.S., provoked it or not, how is this not a threat at this point? Well, it depends on how you formulate it. I mean, for historical and political reasons, not entirely due to bad American policy. Uh, China's moment in the sun is coming. Russia has to decide where it's going to be in this order. The old order is falling apart. A new one is emerging. Whether we like it or not, we don't dismiss it as a kind of capricious, anti-American move on Russia. It's driven by powerful factors. Uh, Crimea is usually given as Putin's original sin. And I don't think you could find the word Crimea in any of his talks or interest or foreign policy priorities until the United States abetted the overthrow of the legitimately elected, whatever a rotter he might have been, president of Ukraine in February 2014. So there's a history to these provocations. Ruel, the first first part of of Stephen's argument that Putin grabbed Crimea, does that strengthen your argument or do you find Stephen's argument persuasive? No, I don't find it persuasive. I mean, I I do think, I mean, dictatorships hang together. There is a reason why China and Russia and Iran have made an alliance. They, uh, They run oppressive societies and they have the common denominator that they all really don't like the United States terribly much. And what is striking to me is when I listen to Putin, I mean, I understand why the supreme leader of Iran likes him. He sounds like him. 
It's the same type of lexicon that they use to describe their common enemy. So the, I, I think it's just misplaced to talk about this realist potential uh, of somehow we're going to build an alliance with the Russians. It's not going to happen because they don't want it to happen. If you were to actually have a thriving democratic society to develop, I know that seems like a million miles off in Ukraine, it could kill Putin. Yeah, that, I mean, that's what, what's striking to me is, is how it becomes America's fault that the people of Central and Eastern Europe want the United States closer to them and want to be protected from Russia. The several thousand troops the U.S. may be rotating through the Baltics is just a small fraction of the Russian divisions that are lined up on their border. And after Ukraine, what they all thought is this could be coming to a theater near us soon. John Mearsheimer. Yeah, I, I just want to say that the United States has the Monroe Doctrine. And the Monroe Doctrine says that no distant great power, i.e. a great power from Europe or East Asia, is allowed to move military forces into the Western Hemisphere and form a military alliance with a country in our hemisphere. It makes eminently good sense for the United States. Russia, being a great power, has its own version of the Monroe Doctrine. And it was our moving of NATO up to the border and saying that Ukraine and Georgia would become part of NATO that led to the Georgia War in 2008 and led to the war over Ukraine in 2000. That's why the thousands of Ukrainians were in the Maidan in Kiev in 2014. Corey Shockey, we heard earlier in this discussion the charge of Russophobia, that Russophobia is off the charts. What about that? I agree that we are more worried about the Russians and building them into a bigger threat than they actually are. Uh, But that is a natural reaction to Russia's bad behavior. They poisoned two people in the streets of Great Britain. They're doing the kinds of things that are making countries feel incredibly anxious. More than two. Uh, Why is that a threat to the U.S. security? uh, Because if they will do it in Britain, would they not do it here? What the Russians are doing is fighting asymmetric strategies, picking away at areas of unprotected uh, Western dominance, social media, poisonings, the kinds of things that make them feel intimidating. And that's why there's this strong Russophobia building, because people rightly assess that Vladimir Putin's Russia is a malign actor in the world. And that concludes discussion of this resolution. The Russia threat is overblown. When we come back, our third and final motion on the topic of national security, where we ask, is it time to take a hard line on Iran? Stay with us. And welcome back to our debate tonight. We have five panelists debating several different motions. The theme is unresolved U.S. national security. A reminder of where we are. We are halfway through this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. Our five panelists are debating the state and the future of American national security. And now Iran, um, always high on the list of U.S. security concerns, an aspiring nuclear power, the backer of terrorism, with the perpetual question, isolate Iran, squeeze it, or try to coax this radical nation into more moderate behavior. It's the choice that's at the heart of our final resolution. It is time to take a hard line on Iran. Derek Chalet, on that resolution, it's time to take a hard line on Iran. Do you declare yes or no? I'm a yes, but I am a yes but, and I'll explain. Um, Iran provides material and political support to those who are trying to destabilize the Middle East. Iran's forces have been responsible for the deaths of thousands in places like Syria. Iran's proxies have killed American civilians and our troops. And Iran wants to develop nuclear weapons. So, of course, it's time to take a hard line against Iran. Uh, That begins by forging the strongest possible international consensus. Iran must know that its actions have consequences, whether in form of economic pressure political isolation, or even military response. In other words, the best way to take a hard line is to present a united front. And that's what the Iran nuclear deal did. 
The Iran nuclear deal did not solve all of our problems in, with Iran, but it did put the brakes on the most urgent and serious ones. So taking a hard line needs to be more than a slogan. It needs to be a means to an end. It's not just about talking tough and beating your chest. It's about pursuing smart policies that get you closer to your goals. Thank you, Derek Chalet. The resolution, it's time to take a hard line on Iran. Stephen Cohen, on this resolution, do you declare yes or no? That's a no. You know, Derek... I, I mean, I, I kind of give him the credit that he's made a, at least a semi-persuasive case. I mean, I don't think it's off the charts like some of the things that have been said about Russia. I'll take it. I'll take it. No, I'll you take should. It. You <laughs> should. You should. But my feeling is, is that the United States, or Trump as we like to call the United States today, having left the nuclear agreement and reimposed sanctions, I ask myself, what would a harder line result in? It's likely to create instability inside Iran. That is likely to spread to Iraq and Syria and elsewhere in the Middle East. And I don't see that as good for anybody. Secondly, it certainly would, at least theoretically, risk war, depending on how hard this hard line is. And that could involve the United States, Israel, and possibly Russia. It will then increase... Uh, Russia's military and energy-producing role in the world, because... Stephen Cohen, I'm sorry, your time is up. Thank you very much. (laughs) Going now to Corey Shockey on the resolution, it's time to take a hard line on Iran. Please tell us how you declare. It is time to take a harder line on Iran. They are the top state sponsor of terrorism in the world. They are arming Hezbollah and Hamas. They are keeping Bashar al-Assad in power. Uh, And they are occasionally interdicting shipping in the Straits of Hormuz, through which an enormous amount of the world's oil transits. Uh, so, So yes, we should take a harder line. Both the Trump administration and the Obama administration had an unbelievable policy, namely either you stop your nuclear weapons program or we will destroy it. And I don't think that's credible out of either of the two governments. We need a wider range of tools uh, to manage the Iran problem. At At its core, the Iran problem is that the domestic legitimacy and the foreign policy of Iran have the same root, which is they view that themselves as a revolutionary power. So taking a soft line on Iran doesn't result in Iran stopping doing these things. Thank you, Kari Shaki. It's time to take a hard line on Iran. John Mearsheimer, do you declare yes or no? I say no. Uh, I take this resolution as a question uh, dealing with President Trump's decision in May of this year to withdraw from the uh, nuclear agreement with Iran. And uh, I think that that was a fundamental mistake. Look, the question is, the question you want to ask yourself is, why do countries want nuclear weapons? They want nuclear weapons because they understand they are the ultimate deterrent. And if you're threatened, you really want to have nuclear weapons. Why does Israel have nuclear weapons? Because its leaders think they live in a dangerous neighborhood where they want to have the ultimate deterrent in their back pocket. Well, what's good for the goose is good for the gander. So there's going to be a very powerful incentive for the Iranians to think the same way. Now, the hawks believe that you can get really tough with the Iranians and you can beat them into giving up nuclear weapons forever. I don't think that's going to happen. First of all, it's just going to reinforce the hardliners inside Iran. And second of all, nationalism is a very powerful force. And the idea that you can push the Iranians around, I think, is a misguided thought. Thank you, John Mearsheimer. It's time to take a hard line on Iran. Last in the lineup of panelists to declare yes or no. Ruel, Mark, you're act. Are you a yes or no? Yes. Uh, I'd say, I mean, this is one of those issues uh, that I think the Trump administration has actually done the right thing. I have to commend it. It has stopped the surreal situation where the United States was feeding tens of billions of dollars into the Islamic Republic, into its Shiite imperialism throughout the region for a short respite to the production of centrifuges. It makes no strategic or moral sense. 
why we would want to give money to a regime that is gauged in mass slaughter in Syria, why we would want to give money to a state that is building Hezbollahs throughout the uh, Shiite regions of the Middle East. I just think this is nuts, particularly since the JCPOA was such a very, very bad deal. It's as leaky, it's, it's got as many holes as Swiss cheese in it. I would also add the demonstrations that have been going on in Iran since December ought to tell you they're not shouting out down with America, down with Donald Trump. They're shouting down with the regime, down with the Revolutionary Guard Corps. Thank you, El Marcaret. And that concludes opening statements with the resolution, it's time to take a hard line on Iran. Looking at the opening round, we have three yeses and two noes. I want to go to Corey Shockey with some points made by people on the no side, which seem to all come down to the question of dangerous unintended consequences of taking a harder line on Iran. On the one hand, Stephen Cohen saying you would risk war. Dangerous unintended consequences. What about that? Uh, yes, I think there are dangerous unintended consequences for confronting Iran's destabilizing and dangerous behavior, but there are also dangerous unintended consequences of not confronting it. Allowing Iran to continue to destabilize regional governments, to interdict the free commerce through the Straits of Hormuz, to continue to be a state sponsor of terror. Recall that the Iranian government tried to assassinate the Saudi ambassador in Washington, D.C. So not confronting those things. At a bad restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> also, also has the potential to encourage and incentivize continued Iranian malign behavior. Derek Chalet. Well, look, this is the land of no good options, right? When I was at the Pentagon during the negotiations of the Iran nuclear deal, I had nothing to do with the negotiations. Uh, what the Pentagon's role in this was, what do we do when the negotiations or if the negotiations fail? And all we're left with is the military option. Now, we have options. The U.S. military has, has, has shown over the years that it can do all sorts of things, overthrow governments, put a lot of uh, firepower on particular targets. But those, those are not particularly palatable options. So I would argue we were in a better position where we had isolated the nuclear problem, Rail's right, temporarily, 10 to 15 years, so we could work on the other aspects of Iran's behavior that pose such a threat to the United States. The problem now that we pulled out of the, the nuclear deal, when you go to Europe, when you go out to the Middle East, what they're talking about is American policy, not Iran's policy. And I don't believe that Iran has actually benefited that much from the, uh, the nuclear deal. I mean, the Iranian people were on the streets, and they actually thought the nuclear deal was a bad deal for them. So the idea that now we're going to engage in some sort of negotiation to get a better deal from, from our perspective, a worse deal for Iran, to me is fantasy. John Marshall. Yeah, I, I want to respond to uh, a point that Corey made and tie that into a point that Rule made. You're critical of the Iranians for destabilizing regimes in the region. Is there any country that's destabilized more regimes than the United States of America? I mean... The hypocrisy here is really, with all due respect, stunning. I want to bring the topic back, the, the focus back to Iran at the moment. And well, go, and, no, I, I understand, but I want to bring another dimension that we haven't discussed yet, which is this notion that's been out there since the Islamic Republic came to be, that there's a, there's a moderate element. There's a, there's, a, there's, a, uh, there's a group there to go to. I'll go to you first, Corey Shaki. Do you believe there's a moderate element to play to, to engage with? Would taking a hard line work to enhance that, or would it work to silence I believe there are moderate it? Iranians. I do not believe there are any moderate Iranians in the government. Mm -hmm. Derek Chalet? Yeah, I, 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 I agree with that. I think that uh, the, the government, what counts for moderate in the Iranian government is not very moderate. So the, the current Iranian president only looks moderate when you compare him to the previous Iranian, Iranian president, Amani Najad. It's so sort taking, of like... So, so taking a hard line plays how in that... Dimension. Well, yeah, I think there are there are plenty of Iranian people, as we have seen as evidenced in the, the demonstrations over the last eight months, that have huge problems with that regime. Uh, so I think that showing that the regime uh, will suffer consequences for its behavior, I think, can have an effect. Uh, John, John, I just want to make a very quick point that's yes. relevant to this question. I, I was in Iran in December. And uh, I talked to all sorts of leaders up and down the chain of command and across the political spectrum. And almost everybody says that they're in actually quite good strategic situation in the region now. 
But it's not because of purposeful behavior on their part, the kind of story you're hearing from the people who disagree with me up here. It's largely a result of the foolish policies of the United States. Just take Iraq, for example. You know they fought a war, uh, a long war, eight years in the 1980s with Iraq. And now they have tremendous influence in Iraq. Why? Because the United States toppled Saddam Hussein and left Iraq wide open for them. They make the same so, argument with regard to Syria. Me, they are in the catbird seat in Syria. But it's not because of anything they did. It's because of the foolishness of the United States which dropped this big apple So the U.S., lap. as you point out, pursued regime change in Iraq. Ruel, would you support regime change as part of taking a hard line against Iran? Well, sure. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure the... I'm not sure the, the administration's obviously not there, but I think uh, you definitely want to take an, a containment approach towards the Islamic Republic, and a contain, containment strategy is effectively a regime change strategy. I think you do want to ally the United States with the demonstrators in the streets. I think you do want to ally them to the massive eruption and the Green Movement of 2009-2010. Uh, you know, the problem is that the moderates in Iran keep getting stuffed, uh, and there's one thing we know certainly is that Hassan Rouhani, the president of Iran, is not a moderate. Uh, he is a founding father of the security state. He's a founding father of the intelligence ministry. And I must just say that some of the commentary that came out of the Obama administration about him was just historically absurd. It had no basis in primary material. Derek Sorry about that, Derek. Derek Slay, the regime change question as well for you. Does taking a hard line mean working deliberately towards regime change in Iran? It is hard to see how the United States is going to uh, have a Middle East that is congruent with our interests with the current regime in Iran. That doesn't mean that regime change equals military invasion uh, like we saw in Iraq. Uh, But I think U.S. US presidents from both political parties have made this clear. Uh, Even Donald Trump, I think, agrees with this, that it's it's, it's hard to see how the United States can serve its interests with the the Islamic uh, regime in Iran. So what are the implications of that, Corey Shockey? I agree with Raul that aligning ourselves with people who peacefully protest for political change in their own countries uh, is almost always uh, where the United States ought to seek to be. But whether you take action to overthrow the Iranian government or whether you do something, use our tools at hand to draw attention to create friction between the government and their people. For example, by drawing attention to the fact that the Iranian government struck 10,000 names off the electoral rolls for parliament because these people had political views that uh, the Iranian government wouldn't support. To draw attention to the human rights violations, to the torture of uh, prisoners arrested in 2009. We can do those kinds of things and help force accountability on the Iranian government, but doing more than that, I worry, uh, would open us up to a John Mearsheimer in future. (laughs) John Mearsheimer. Just two quick points. You know how ballistic we go when countries like Russia interfere in our domestic politics? Again, the hypocrisy here is just stunning. Talking about doing regime change here, there, and everywhere. Don't you folks believe in sovereignty? We believe in sovereignty when it comes to the United States. Why shouldn't we believe in sovereignty when it comes to other countries? The second point I would make is when you look at our track record, Raul, on regime change, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Iraq, Syria, Libya, it's one failure after another. Why are you confident that we can make regime change work in Iran and have a happy ending when we failed so many times? Well, one, I'd just say, one, it's not us that would be making it. It would be the Iranian people. We aren't doing anything that they don't want. What we can do is we can stop enriching the regime. We can put the sanctions back up, which we are doing, and they were going to come back up in force, real force, come November. There's no sense, on, uh, in fact, giving that regime further money so it can continue its aims abroad. I, I just find that absurd. And I will just say this. I don't want to get into a rock discussion here, though I'm quite willing at any time. I can give I will, you 10 seconds I to will do this. just make note this. You know, as, as bad and corrupt as it is, uh, you know, the Iraqi democracy still exists. It is still struggling. And guess what? Much of that democracy is not terribly cracked up 
about the imperial hand of Iran in its own country. And with that, we should fortify and, and it. with that mention of Iraq, we conclude discussion of our resolution about Iran. We went through three different debates, three resolutions. We had you vote before you heard the arguments, and we had you vote again after you heard the arguments. And we want to look at the change between the first and the second vote. So let's look at the first resolution. NATO is no longer fit for purpose. In that resolution, the first vote, 20% voted yes and 80% voted no. In the second vote on that resolution, 25% voted yes and 75% voted no. That that represents a swing of 5% towards the yes side. Sure. <laughs> that's you. I don't understand the question. <laughs> that's you. That's you. I won? Yeah, you're good. You won. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> the double negatives really confuse this. Yeah. <laughs> I had no idea what the question meant in the first place, but I'm glad I won. The second resolution, the Russia threat is overblown. In the first vote, 31% voted yes and 69% voted no. In the post-debate vote, 44% Voted yes, 56% voted no. That represents a swing of 13% towards the yes side. That's you again. Yeah. In the final resolution, it's time to take a hard line in Iran. In the first vote, 38% voted yes, 62% voted no. In the second vote, 48% voted yes, 52% no. A swing of 10% again towards the yes side. It's an evening when yes won three times in a row. I want to thank our debaters. I want to thank all of the audience here in New York at Symphony Space. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for me, John Donvan, and we'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate was held in front of a live audience at the Symphony Space Theater in New York City. Robert Rosencrantz is our chairman. Leah Mathau is our chief content officer. Amy Kraft is director of operations and production. Shea O'Mara is manager of editorial operations. Taylor Quimby and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host, John Donvan. These debates are made possible by generous contributions from listeners like you and with support from the Rosencrantz Foundation, David A. Coulter, Robert Epstein, the Christopher W. Johnson Charitable Trust, Ilona Namath and Alan Quasha, the George L. Orstrom Jr. Foundation, Jerry Orstrom, Kelly Posner Gerstenhaber, the Mortimer D. Sackler Foundation, Jennifer and Philippe Salendi, the Paul E. Singer Foundation, Edward Stern and Stephanie Rain, and Emily and Antoine Van Actmill. From all of us at Intelligence Squared and me, John Donvan, thank you. Hey there, we are hiring at Intelligence Squared. We are growing. We're producing more debates on more topics than ever before. And that means we're also hiring. We are looking for a research associate to help our editorial team plan our debates. To learn more, visit iq2us.org. That is iq, the number two, us.org. Next month, on October 11th, Intelligence Squared U.S. will be live at the K Playhouse Theater in New York City, debating the motion, Progressive Populism Will Save the Democratic Party. Jeff Weaver, who managed Bernie Sanders' 2016 campaign, will team up with MoveOn.org's Karine Jean-Pierre to argue for that resolution. They're going up against Third Way's Jonathan Cohen and Obama administration alum Stephen Ratner, who will argue against. We still have a few tickets available, so visit IQ2US.org to buy yours or text the letters IQ and the number 2 to 797979. And you'll get a link sent right to you. That's IQ2 to 797979. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.